This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, Visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Jeff Dyer. Paul Holden Graber, I very much suspect. You suspect correctly. I feel like we 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 could be in a detective story. Oh, it's so good to hear your voice, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call, taking this phone call from Paul. Good. I'm looking forward to it. But of course, what I'm looking forward to even more is administering a major spanking on the ping pong table in uh, Calabash in a couple of days. Do, do you really think that's what's going to happen? Oh, I have absolutely no doubt at all. I've been uh, I've been playing quite a bit, um, so um, yeah, I, I go into this in, in, into this latest encounter full of confidence. Well, I, I I must say I I approach it with some trepidation, which I shouldn't, of course, tell you because it only will add to the competitive uh, spirit between us, which is interesting in and of itself, since I I don't feel competitive in any sport actually I play no sport except for ping pong and I do ping pong uh, professionally also I, I I view my my exchanges with people as a form of ping pong but what, Indeed, what yeah. but what strikes me and what frightens me slightly is that you just recently beat Pico Aya Yes, I did, but in truth, I wouldn't take too much credit for that. Um, the what I would take credit for is, I mean, you talked about uh, how you know ping pong, verbal ping pong is your profession. In a sense, this was uh, my debut as a professional <laughs> ping pong player. In that we got Pico and I got paid to play in public. Admittedly, we had to talk for for quite a bit before the game, but the game itself, it was just one one game to 11 and although we'd had a fantastic time in the afternoon playing on the same uh, table on the stage when it came to it under the sort of uh, light of public scrutiny it just wasn't a it wasn't a serious game so I'll, I'll I'll derive no I derive no great satisfaction from from that game so so this was 5 um 511 is what what um I hear from from all reports how did that work did you did you have a conversation and then the ping pong g- uh, game or did you have a conversation while playing ping pong <laughs> <laughs> didn't do we didn't do the the latter no we had a, a proper a normal sort of you know formal literary conversation for about 50 minutes then this was a 
this was a kind of bonus extra. And I think uh, both of us felt rather self-conscious that while we're playing on our own, we, we, we're, we play under the delusion that we're playing at quite a high standard. As we got on to the stage to, to start playing in front of this audience, we realized, oh, my God, what, how, how, how inept must this look from their point of view? Um, is it something you would wish to do again? Because after that, I mean, I'm sorry to, to revisit the site of a trauma for you, but after it's, I... it's it's all right, it's all right. Uh, you know, nothing that ten or twelve years of therapy won't help. Go ahead. <laughs> so after I crushed you in the final of that um, uh, ping pong tournament in um, uh, the Brooklyn Writers Festival, you'll remember that we all went to a, a bar afterwards, and it was you know we were all hanging out. I don't think I've ever been in such a great mood in my entire life. I just felt so fantastic about the world, and I felt the world was a, a just place, a meritocratic, it was a thoroughly meritocratic planet. And that made me think, God, I really would like to, you know, to, 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 to do that again. And you know, it, it strikes me, uh, hearing you say this, you in particular, Jeff Dyer, that I'm surprised you would want to be in that mood again. <laughs> it, uh, I always wake up in a good mood and then what I find is that you know a few things can happen and that mood can undergo, undergo a rapid and catastrophic deterioration but uh, oh I'd certainly like to recapture that uh, I can't remember the I can't remember the line I I think it's Dean Martin who said that the prospect of a day where it doesn't end with a drink is really is really quite terrifying but it isn't the line isn't quite quite correct so i i, I won't try to quote it but it, it strikes me um jeff that we should do this um not only uh in calabash in jamaica where we will uh by the time this phone call airs we I will have uh, beaten you, but but uh, but really, I I think we should we should do this exchange uh, us two together. I was wondering, you know, where the inspiration had come in San Francisco for uh, for you and and Pico to play, and I feel like they stole my idea before I could really enact it, and now. Now I really would love—I would love us to have a, a full-fledged conversation about the arc of your of your career, and then really play not a game until eleven, but something more. I don't know what more, but I do want um, to remind you of a moment which is probably equally traumatic for you, which is when we met in London, and I had the idea that you might write something and perhaps. Um, do an event at at the library on on Susan Sontag, and instead you deflected the conversation by inviting me to your home to play ping pong on a beautiful table that you set up, which I must say stays in my mind as as an image of perfection. And I, in the end, you gave me a T-shirt to put on. In the end, I beat you three two. The last game being nineteen or eighteen twenty one. And then you gave me back my my shirt. This was when I was in in uh, London to interview Adam Phillips, both for the Serpentine Gallery and for the Paris Review. And as you closed the door, do you remember what you said to me? It would probably be 
something like, this will never happen again. And I was referring to the defeat, not our playing together. No, you didn't say that. Oh, what did I say? And, and I'd, I'd love you to elaborate on it, perhaps both in terms of, of ping pong um, and perhaps in terms of your, your work, if, if you can. You said, I know what it feels like to win. <laughs> Well, the, tr the truth is I'm actually rather more familiar with the, the taste of ashes in the mouth, the taste of defeat. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, uh, because, of course, if you're, if you're English, I mean, that's the very taste of, of England, in a, in a way, the taste of ashes in the mouth, isn't it? Um, but, yeah, I certainly, I mean, because I am, it's, it's funny, my wife, you see, she doesn't have any competitive urge at all. She spent her childhood learning to play uh, musical instrument. She's very, very accomplished like that. She's just got, she can't understand this idea of wanting to win and of not liking losing. It's so alien to her. Uh, what I would say in my defense is that um, it's, it's restricted to sport for me, although I like kind of competitive bantering at a party, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm very happy with the way that it's sort of that instinct is sort of ghettoized into into sport. And as we know, it's really fun playing sport with somebody who's competitive and it's really no fun at all with somebody who starts sulking and stops stops running after they after they're uh, you know not doing so well. But yeah, I I I do know what it's I really know what it's like now after my triumph at the uh, at, at the writers festival. Yes, um, I, I, and and in in a sense, we what, what is really exciting is um, that we are at one one now, and right. and that very kindly, um, as I was asking you, because I have no clue about these matters, um, I asked you about paddles, and you're bringing to Jamaica a paddle for me. I don't know, I was wondering, given, uh, given the perversity of this whole situation, whether in fact you might be bringing me a faulty paddle. <laughs> I would never do that, but oh. it's one of the things I realized when we were emailing about this and you, you were asking me for advice on a paddle, I mean, what I kept insisting is that, you know, it's so entirely personal that um, it's difficult to objectively uh, assess these things. But yeah, this at the club I play in, there were a number of paddles going. So I, I got one for myself and one for you. What does one look, what does one look for in terms of it being personal? I mean, does somebody analyze um, uh, your your game. I know that Jerome Charin um, has his own paddle. Um, have you ever played him? No, I haven't. So J Jerome Charin um, played me and 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 was ec extremely good. I think he won. And uh, I said I said to him, I think I need a paddle. And he said, I, 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 at your level, I don't think so. You know, which, which I mean, you can imagine. So anything that's happened between us, Jeff, so far hasn't hurt me quite as much as that. But I, I wonder, does somebody analyze your game or do you know, does the paddle in a way um, help you mask some of your defects? Well, it certainly does. And also, I, I feel that, I feel this about all sport, you want to have the best equipment so that um, it's, it's, 
any failings are down to you rather than feeling that, uh, you know, it's just because you're playing with, with something faulty. But, I mean, there is a tragic story about my uh, about me and ping-pong paddles. I went to Shanghai um, on, a, on a sort of book tour. And, of course, because I was going to China, I said to my publishers who were hosting me, and, of course, I want to spend every spare moment I've got playing ping-pong. So the very first mo- morning I get to Shanghai... And I immediately go to the Shanghai Writers uh, Association or club to uh, to play ping pong, and it's obvious that in a, in a way that I thoroughly approve of at the Writers Association, they don't do any writing at all. They just spend all their time playing ping pong, and so I was walloped by such a kind of wide age range of people. I think by one guy who looked like he was about 80. Uh, my publisher took pity on me, and they had a paddle handmade for me. And it was, they'd watched me play, and it was just, I and that paddle, we became one, and I just loved it, and it was so great. And then, tragically, it got lost in the, in the, in the, in, in, somewhere along, I was doing a complicated journey with lots of flights from Austin to, oh, San Francisco, LA, something like that. It was lost, and I contacted the various airlines, and to my great delight, they said, yes, we found your, your paddle. Uh, and so I sent off the, just the $10 for them to FedEx it back to me. And I was so happy because, as you know, it's lovely to be reunited with anything that you think you've lost. Yes, it, it feels like an accomplishment. Yes, it really does. And it feels like, I don't know, it's probably like the pharaohs felt as they were reunited, you know, when they woke up in the afterlife and found all their stuff. Anyway, the paddle arrived and uh, I unwrapped the, the FedEx box and it was someone else's useless paddle. A oh. terrible, I mean, just a terrible thing. And that, that's when I then had to begin this thing of looking, looking for a new paddle. How, how, how amazing. How am- and, and the one you found, you wrote to me in those exchanges we had, is, is not good. Um, so, uh, the one that, I've got, uh, that I bought uh, the other day, yes. I'm, I'm beginning to quite like. Oh, good. I'm sorry to hear that. But, 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 but so, so be it. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Do you, have, do you have balls? Do you have three-star balls? Yes, I certainly do. And, and, and that matters, right? The difference being uh, my, my, old, my younger boy, who's fairly okay, um, always wants to play with three-star balls, but I can't really explain to him why they're better. They, they seem to me to be, they, as it were, they cling to the, to the paddle for that extra sort of millisecond so that, they, that more spin is imparted to them. But the extraordinary thing about this for me is why anyone buys anything other than three-star balls, since really they're all pretty much the same price. Right. You know, the, the, saving is so, the saving is so minuscule uh, by, by um, uh, buying uh, uh, inferior balls. Yes, yeah, so they, they could even just stop manufacturing anything but three-star balls, whereupon, of course, the three-star ball itself would, in a sense, cease to exist. Um, writers and, and ping-pong, we know... We know Ping. We know Pico. We know you. I know that Salman Rushdie loves ping pong. Um, do you know others? There's Jonathan Safran Foer, who uh, I've only played on a crazy, wacky, silver, rippling sort of psychedelic artwork table in London one time, um, and. Uh, 
yeah, those are the ones that come to mind. I've never played Salman Rushdie because whenever we've had a chance to, it's always been at the Telluride Film Festival, which is at altitude, and just crossing the road leaves one chronically out of breath. Because so, uh, I, I, I think that when I, when I um, bring all this together, I'm, I'm wondering whether we should sit down and really figure out who the, who the good players are. Yeah. And, and and maybe I could take you on all together in conversation and then beat all of you in ping pong. Now now um on a, on another subject, um it, it really has to do with uh, the subject of classification. You know, Roland Barthes once said that tell me how you classify and I will tell you who you are. Oh nice. And I wonder how this speaks to you, this this quotation. You just said, oh, nice. Yes. Uh, uh, well, I mean, you know, we can think of that famous uh, uh, classification of, of Borges, can't we? That, uh, yes, the best of them all. Yeah, isn't it? Because, you know, and it blows Foucault's mind in one of those books. Yes. Theology of Knowledge or whichever. The, the beginning of, um, yes, exactly. And of course, that's so crazy that, that 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 taxonomy that he comes up with. But yeah, I think Bass is right, uh, 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 like that. Um, but could just give me a bit more, give me a bit more rope with which to, to oh, hang myself. Well, uh, no, I'm I'm keen to to observe that. Um, you, like some of the writers I love most, uh, quite frankly, um, recalcitrant in in the true in the true kind of etymological sense of of the word recalcitrant, which literally means to kick back. You are recalcitrant to the notion of being classified, or of of um, fitting one kind of writing and i think as you progress in your life jeff um i feel more and more a a a discomfort um I, I, I think it's a mixture of discomfort and i can hear you sort of laughing um at any critic who might want to put under a certain rubric, what you have just written, so that the 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 bookstores, you know, that look so carefully at that first page to see under what to put it, yeah. um, it it's 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 a complex matter with you, and I think it's complex not only because uh, you want it to be complex, but because in a sense that's that's how you're thinking today. Yes, it's, I mean, it's, it, but what I want to emphasize is that it's not as though I looked at bookstores or existing ways of classific, classifying things and thought like some sort of young anarchist or, you know, some sort of adolescent troublemaker. I'm going to smash the whole thing apart. It was more just that, fortunately, I had the, the uh, kind of either confidence or laziness to just right in a way that suited me and the way that the book turned out at the end of that in other words 
how it would be categorized was never a concern of mine. But, you know, the, it was certainly, I, there was no intention at all to, there was no, as it were, manifesto dimension to, uh, to, what, to what I was doing. Um, and the, I mean, what I notice now is, like you, many of my favorite writers and, you know, the books I most love, they're kind of uncategorizable. There's several kind of things going on at once. And I put a bracket there and say, you know, the same was obviously the case with, you know, we, I started noticing this in, in music some time back. Yes. But what, what I think we've all noticed now, there is a kind of, um, uh, it's becoming quite a growth area, this, um, this uncategorizable category. And so quite soon there will be a, 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 a section, there's a, yeah, there's a growing section in bookstores devoted to this kind of thing. And of course, the danger is that this you know these uh, these books that arrived at a form kind of of, of their uh, organically as it were that this will be something to be arrived at and it can be you know the idea of a sort of genre defying thing can be could become a matter of rote and I, I certainly hope that doesn't happen. I, I can I can nearly see the New Yorker cartoon. Uh, uh, of the of the man or woman standing in front of a shelf of uh, the non-categorizable books uh, that are, that are being produced now, uh, and uh, obviously that that's not at all what I what I was after. I, I was after more um, a, a sense in which uh, Bart's comment about "Tell me how you classify, and I'll tell you who you are." Um, fits you in so far that you are that that writer who who in in so many ways to my mind um, in a fluid way moves in and out of so many spaces, so many time zones, uh, so many disciplines, and I think it probably has something to do with the fact that you're a man of appetite. Aha! Good. <laughs> but also a man of um, uh, of of, uh, of obsessions, and, right? Uh, passions and hobbies, rather than being someone who's addicted, uh, rather than someone of an addictive bent. In that, you know, I often think that maybe the thing about the obsessive is that you. You know, you you flit around from you you bounce from one obsession to another, as opposed to some sort of you know monorail type uh, addiction. But it's it always strikes me that it's rather uh, it seems rather normal to be interested in lots of different things. And if you're interested in lots of different things, then of course you want to write about them to explain to to articulate to yourself what it is about those things that's that's interesting. And then once you do that, if you know, then of course you have to arrive at a form and a style that's appropriate to the subject. Um, and from that comes not just a, a range of books, but also a, 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 um, books written in a, in a wide range of styles and forms, it seems to me. Obviously, there'd be no, I wouldn't take any pride at all if I'd just come to many different subjects and imposed a kind of uniform, unvarying template on those subjects, irrespective of what the defining stylistic characteristics of those subjects were. You know, I'm I'm a man who who never can stop 
uh, quoting. I, I, I think I, I suffer from quotomania. I've, I've mentioned this on occasion and quite often. Uh, two, two quotations come to mind. One again by Roland Barthes, who in his in his book on Michelet, which was one of the earliest books he ever wrote on the great French historian of the 19th century, he said he wanted to come up with a thematic kind of um, study of of the main the main obsessions, as it were, of of Michelet, and he says, "I want to come up with an organized web of obsessions." which always seemed to me very, very interesting and, and, and very provocative. And then a line by, by John Waters, which I think fits you beautiful, beautifully, where he says, without obsession, life is nothing. Uh, yes, I, I very much like, uh, like both of those. I've read the Michelet book, but I'd, I'd forgotten that. But yeah, that is, um, that would, uh, I, I'd, I'd sit very Comfortably. Comfortably, yes. Why, why, um, why in this latest collection, White Sands, did you wish to include that very personal part about your 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 stroke? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that it's personal doesn't mean sort of uh, you know. Geez, I mean, what does one write about if not that which is personal? Absolutely. Yeah, so I had no, there was no, I had no, didn't have a moment's hesitation about, uh, to use that, uh, the, the word that's popular here, about sharing that with the world. Yeah, gosh, I, I, I dislike that word, I think, nearly as much as you do. <laughs> um, and then, uh, it, the weird thing about it is that it, it, it coincided, you know, with the absolute beginning of our new life here in California. So it seemed uh, it seemed an appropriate place to end the book because uh, you know uh, it was you know it was a it, it's 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 where a new life is beginning. But my God, that 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 new life began with a a real sense that it could all come to an end. The end, yes. Um, I mean, what I what I would say about a, a, a stroke is that the 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 defining thing. I mean, I was very very lucky. It was an incredibly minor stroke. But, you know, you get into a car to go on a journey or you get on your bike and you know there's a chance you might have a, a crash. That's why you put your seatbelt on or, or you wear or you use bike lights at night. Um, but what you don't, you know, you're not sitting there thinking, oh, I could have a stroke in the course of this phone call. But that's how sudden and unanticipated it is. Even even a heart attack, you get, you know, you know, you get pains, all this kind of stuff. So it was the shocking thing, I think, for me was this idea that the, that you know you really a, a hole could open up in the in the road as you're walking along at any moment, and the effect of this briefly was to make me really you know live each day as though it was my last and to regard each day as a gift, all this kind of stuff. Of course, that's unsustainable as a way of living, and in no time at all, I just uh, reverted to living in that normal human way as as though I were immortal again. <laughs> the, the 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 good the good intentions of hardship quickly disappear. Yeah, they really do, and it was a it was a sure sign of recovery where I started becoming quite you know I fell prey to my normal kind of tendency to be to become bored and irritable. You know. Tell me something. Um, has a passion for jazz remained 
a constant in your life? No, it's it's come and gone. It went uh, after I'd finished the book, which was in the early 90s. One of my very favourite, I must say. Thank you. Thank you so much. No. I mean, it went away for reasons, I think, partly because I satisfied my own curiosity about, about jazz. And also, um, I'd become interested in jazz because there'd been a sort of mini jazz revival going on in London in the mid in, in the mid to, to late 80s. And it seemed to me at about the same time, soon after I finished the book, then uh, jazz but, entered a rather less interesting phase. And I personally got drawn into, from from jazz, you know, particularly that crucial figure for me, Don Cherry, I got drawn into world music. But more importantly, you know, as uh, I, I sort of immatured with age, as it were, I, I went from jazz and world music to being so completely immersed in the world of dance music, of house and techno. Yes. I'm so glad I did, because I think in the 1990s, there's, you know, that is when, you know, that was the most exciting kind of music happening, and the speed with which it was developing reminded me in some ways of the incredible speed with which jazz was uh, developing from, say, the, you know, the, 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 late, the late 50s onwards. I, I, must, I'm, I must tell people who might be overhearing our conversation, our phone call, that the book is but beautiful, and it truly is one of the most exquisite books I think you've written, Jeff, and, and I, I feel that for anybody who even comes to jazz for the nearly the first time, something will be transmitted of your love for it that may carry through to the person reading it and make them want to to listen and to discover. I wonder if if it's a silly a silly question and forgive me and i I know that the BBC has for many many years done that uh, um, if you were on a desert island what what records what music would you bring what books would you bring but if you had to choose one one album one jazz album that you love more than any I mean I have one and I'll tell you because I want everybody to listen to it what would it be for you you want to tell me yours first um i i will just just because you know the the ping pong matches ahead of us and it might it might make you feel more relaxed is um ben webster when he was in copenhagen uh played in my view his most soulful uh his most soulful in in, in his most soulful way and he did one album which i don't think is easily available on on long playing records which i still adore being a dinosaur it's called has a fantastic title it's called atmosphere for lovers and thieves <laughs> great ah, atmosphere for lovers and thieves and um he has an interpretation on it for instance of autumn leaves which leaves you breathless, partly because you hear him breathing so heavily. And the ensemble is fantastic. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the bassist, but you would know his name offhand. Niels Pedersen. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? A fantastic bassist who he played with in Copenhagen. It is the single best album I know of. But what is yours? Well, I mean, uh, I know we shouldn't be geeky. Um, um, 
But what I would say is that, I mean, there's a chapter on Ben Webster in that book. Yes. The record, there's a record that I adore of his. It's him rehearsing the Danish radio orchestra big band. Uh, do you know, I think it's called No Fool, No Fun. Yes. And um, and it's so incredible that this kind of, uh, this kind of, you know, they all revere him and he, this kind of person from another planet comes and he's kind of, you know, talking in this completely uh, way that is sort of barely comprehensible to them. But in the course of these rehearsals, he makes them, he doubles the amount that they can swing. It's just so fantastic. Um and, you know, at one point he says, ain't got no beer here, I can't think. Uh, but, yeah, he just comes and it's just this hilarious master class in, in how to swing. But, you know, for me, I think I'm going to choose as my favorite record. It's probably going to be, I'm going to go for First Meditations for Quartet by, by Coltrane. I mean, that's a record which he recorded with the quartet, the last album he made with them and then didn't release it, was dissatisfied with it, and re-recorded it with uh, the addition of Pharaoh Sanders and Rashid Ali. Uh, and that's, um, you know, I've never liked that version so much. I think the incredible thing about um, the, uh, the version that was only released posthumously is you can really hear the quartet coming, coming to the end of its life, that whatever you think of what Coltrane goes on to do, you feel that, yeah, he had to, he had to leave this behind. And there's an amazing transition from uh, the end of the first track, Love, to uh, the second track, Compassion, which is one of the great moments in jazz, not because it's a climactic moment, but just this beautiful, really wonderful transition. Um, Jeff, isn't it the case that when we, when we, I mean, it, it, of course it isn't always the case, but in this particular moment, I feel um, that speaking about one's passions and obsessions reignites them. Yeah. I mean, I, I just feel you've just given me um, kind of a craving to hear that album, which I think I've heard, but certainly not in the way that you describe it. I mean, there are moments, obviously, when we want to be left alone and not have to articulate what we love. I, I always remember, and sorry again, another another quotation from Stendhal where he says, J'eus l'enfance de parler de mon bonheur. I had the childishness to speak about my happiness. And one has to be utterly careful sometimes to speak about what we love because it it can diminish um in the in the telling the the extraordinary feeling which sometimes is unutterable in words for what we really love but here it it makes me think also of you not only as a writer but as a celebrator and reader and how books have feared for you with age. I'm obsessed, Jeff, uh, probably we've spoken about this before, but I'm obsessed by this notion, possibly because uh, years are going by, uh, or that I feel that years are going by much, much more than I did before, but I'm really obsessed with this idea of age and taste. Yes, yeah. And what we remain faithful to, what we care for what remains um, valuable, whatever these terms are, because obviously they are 
highly compromised terms, and the the stress lies very much on on a notion of 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 somehow quality. I suspect, um, which I tend to believe in, but um, you know what 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 in the rereading keeps that 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 um, precious quality of what makes something great. Yeah, you're you're right. I mean, it's. I think it's really interesting as well in that when you're listening to uh, to, to what we in the jazz world call straight music, classical yeah. music, because nearly always the first version of, say, the Beethoven piano sonatas that you've listened to, I mean, that is the kind of you know that is the one, irrespective of how um, of how good it is. Uh, that's the one that defines how it how it sounds, and it's quite interesting in one's later life how you come to appreciate what it turns out are you know by 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 the consensus consensus what are what are better versions. So I like the way that one's one's taste is always in the process of being um, sort of um, <clears throat> uh, worked on and refined, let's say. And you you know. Um... Uh, Proust said that the first edition of a book is the first edition in which we have read the book. Oh my word! Yes, absolutely. Great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so true. Isn't it so? It's so good, and I can't remember where it is. But there's one short book of his which possibly is among my favorite. Uh, if one doesn't have the time, as it were, to reread La Recherche, is a book on reading. He wrote an introduction to Ruskin. Uh, Ruskin had written a book called Sesame and Lilies, which was all about reading. And um, Proust wrote an introduction to that introduction on reading. So it's on reading, on reading. And he says in, in the first sentence, he says something like, there are perhaps no days of our childhood that we haven't lived as fully as we thought we had lived them, that we lived with a favorite book. And it is, you know, such a, a beautiful line of him being a reader and being annoyed that he was just about to be interrupted to yeah. have to go to a meal or something that was completely inconsequential. But I'm wondering, as I return to that question, um, which which are which are the books for you that, or which book, or what comes to mind to you that that actually remains remains valuable yeah i mean there are there are so there are so many and um one of them that i'm particularly sort of struck by because it my reaction seems to fly in the face of uh of the sort of uh, uh of the, the consensus you know i read on the road by jack kerouac when i was you know the, the appropriate age 16 17 or something and of course i really liked it and the standard narrative is that you do like it at that age and then you grow out of it. Whereas for me, it's one of those books I reread every every five years or so. And it grows and grows for me. I mean, it's something that I seem to show no sign of growing out of. Uh, and what is really just the, the, the as, a, as a book about friendship and the, the sadness of it um, and the absolute triumph of, of Kerouac's life, um, uh, I was going to say, in spite of the fact, I mean, you know, even taking into account of, you know, what became of him, that he became this, you know, just sort of slobby old drunk, 
But, uh, you know, there was this huge hunger on Kerouac's part to, to write this great book. I think he managed it. And it's a great reminder for me that the value of a life can never be assessed chronologically. You know, I mean, Kerouac, he might, you know, yeah, he might as well go to pieces because actually with that book, he'd achieved everything he, he, dream, he dreamed of. And I'm so surprised by the way that that book continues to, to work its magic on me. And every time I read it, I wait for the disillusionment to, to kick in, and, and it never does. What about you and On the Road? Uh, you, you know, um, again, what, what, what has happened now is I read it. I, I am not sure I reread it. Um, there are plenty of books uh, at this moment in time that I would be very worried to reread. Um, I would be re worried to reread uh, the Alexandra Quartet. Um, I would be worried to reread much of much of Hermann Hesse. Maybe even some of the stories of Thomas Mann. There, there might be there might be books that you know I I imagine. I would be disappointed uh, by and and in that disappointment I might feel disappointed with my own self in in, in some way uh, how could I have loved that so much and and this whole notion of not growing out of something is so interesting i mean we could have a a whole conversation about that and you know it it strikes me also that you have remained so faithful to to some of the the writers who have matters to you deeply, and one in particular I can't not talk to you about, and I'm sure you know who that is, yeah. is, is John Berger, yeah. who, who you have championed in the, in the most extraordinary way, um, just, you know, being really by his side, and... Um, I, I read somewhere recently that you you discovered some new pieces of his that you you hadn't yet read, but yeah, I mean yeah, so the, the, yeah, I mean yeah, so my my kind of um, God, I mean I don't know what the word is. I was going to say my loyalty to to John Berger, but that's that's kind of that's not the right word. At no, all it's it's that... it's kind of a a. Um... I don't know what the word is, but it's something very particular because it isn't, you know, it isn't that you're a disciple, it isn't that you're reverent, it isn't that you are fawning, it isn't any of those things. It's it's something he he um, maybe because he is a, the the continuation in a very different way of the early love you had for Raymond Williams, but there is something about John Berger that just stays with you as long as he is there. Yes, and, you know, the, in addition to the books, there's the fact that he's such a wonderful man. So he'll yeah. be 90 this year, because I was back in London in uh, in December, and he was there too. I, I, I saw him, and, you know, he's such a, a model of, you know, of, of how, of you know, of, of how to have lived as a writer, I think. And in particular, I, I feel that he's, at some point, he sort of, I don't know whether it was a conscious decision, but yeah, I mean, just the, the kind of incredible compassion that he that he now embodies. But to go back to him as a writer, yeah, I've really, he's meant so much for me for so long. I really thought I'd read every little thing there was. But then uh, recently, Tom Overton, yes, um, he put together that book of um, yes. just writing on art, arranging them chronologically by, by the date of the artist. So a really nice new way of 
presenting material that I was already thoroughly familiar with, I thought. Then it turns out there were a couple of uh, essays in there which I hadn't seen before. Um, For example, his essay on on Mark Rothko. And immediately you're thinking, and this is what I've had so often, oh my God, this is just it. But this is explaining the experience that uh, you know that we have looking looking at a Rothko it was really breathtakingly great, um, and yeah, it's um, it, in a way it reminds me of uh, the kind of feeling I get with with Lawrence. You know, there are so many. You know, if, if I come across a bit of Lawrence that I haven't come across before, okay, sometimes it, it won't be that great, but there's a there's a pretty good chance that it's going to be something really fresh and, and wonderful and. Yeah, that essay on, on Rothko in, in the collection Portraits is absolutely breathtaking. You see, and, and once again, I mean, what, what, what is so interesting is, again, I, I, I really want to read that essay, which I have not yet read, but also what Berger manages to do the way I think Rilke did when he, when he described his early um, appreciation for Cézanne and love for Cézanne is he taught you how to see and John Berger does the same. He teaches you how to see, and by reading him, it does something on you. And probably, I imagine that we we can look forward to something in you that will have been inspired by these new essays you've read that you hadn't read. And you know, um, his birthday, as as I recall, is in November uh, of this year. November, well, and uh, as we call it in Britain. Pardon. November, which is Bonfire Night. Well, I Bonfire. I've I've celebrated Bonfire Night with a few people here who are English. Um, so we 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 do what the the English do at that moment and burn that effigy. But yeah. I I am thinking, um, and and perhaps this is a searching comment. But I know that that John doesn't travel anymore, really. Um, but perhaps I can have him on the phone and celebrate him for America on November 5th. Oh my, that's a, that's a good idea, because yes, he does, he does like to speak on the phone. Well, I'd love, I'd love it. I mean, I, I know this is, this is a, a strange way of asking it, and it came to me about 20 seconds ago, but I would love for America to hear, you know, one of the preeminent voices of the world today on his 90th birthday, and I'll see to it that the Literary Hub um, you know, puts it on the air on that day. I did that with Clive James recently, which is, you know, very moving in 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 so many ways to to do. And I think it's something that he really warrants. A complete, complete change of subject. And I'll leave you with this question. I know that you you came. You were one of of the people who came and actually wrote about it. You came to the the interview. I did of Mike Tyson, uh, and I'm I'm curious. Over it's about two years ago. I'm curious what impression that left on you, and what impression Tyson left on you, and if indeed boxing is of interest to you, and what he had to say. So, well, it was the it was the. I've been to lots of writers' talks. Uh, I don't think I've been to a more interesting one than that. But what I remember most is uh, because I happened to bump into you and Tyson standing, um, you know, to the side just before the uh, thing began. And I know you've done a lot of talks, but I don't think you looked more nervous, 
ever seen you. Yes. That would be that yes. would be one thing. Because uh, of course you're familiar with writers, you know. God, that you know, you know what they're like. But here was somebody from a different order of of achievement. The other thing I remember so clearly from that night is just the incredible impact of when he uh, arrived on stage and this incredible kind of almost physical uh, way, uh, sort of ripple in the atmosphere as he as he approached the stage, and then. I guess it's complicated for me because my memories of what he said that night have been overlain by reading the amazing book, the, the you know the, the ghosted autobiography. But it's, it's ghosted. But the guy, as you said, does such a terrific job of of, uh, of capturing his his voice. Yeah, Ratso. His name is Ratso. Larry Sloman. Larry Sloman. Yeah, He's... and I, I reviewed that book and I thought it was really just just incredible, really, and. The thing that that sort of I mean I mean I'd never met him but I read this book and just there's a kind of this incredible intelligence that there is in in in, in Tyson and it just comes it just comes across so powerfully and what I what I it's just it's one of the most amazing autobiographies I've read I think agreed uh, yeah and he's. You know, I don't know how old he is now, but he's lived about sort of five lives already, hasn't he? He's, he's you know, 46 or 47, and he, he really has. He's lived with an incredible intensity. And, and, and two things to say. First of all, um, Tyson came out with um, a second edition of it, which was a paperback edition, where he added a chapter about his exchange at the library. And yes, which I'll 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 have to bring to you, which I will do. You'll 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 get it in just a few days, Jeff, if you know what I mean. And um so I will bring hand deliver that to you and he describes me as a short, which I'm not particularly, uh Belgian, which I'm not at all, um intense. I, I think that's correct. Wiry, which is not really the case, but he describes that evening at the library, and your memory is impeccable, because before coming on stage, Tyson looked at me, and, you know, with that face and whatever is on that face, which is so powerful, and he said, Paul, you look terrified. And I said... <laughs> And I said to him, I look terrified. And then I started to pace a little bit, which must have been the moment when, when you were there. And I was pacing and I was nervous. And he, he took my arm gently, but still. And he said, you're fighting against yourself, which of course were fighting words that he would have learned from Castamato, a way of in a way, having the upper hand before we got on stage. And then on stage, he was so, so remarkable when I spoke to him about the special collections. And he said, a, a room without books is like a body without a soul, which it turned out to be a, a line from Cicero. But there was Mike Tyson <laughs> quoting Cicero. <laughs> Incredible. Oh, yeah, I think the only other person who's had a a life like like him, and their lives have been so similar in ways. It would be Diego Maradona, I think. That's right. You know, That's right. Let's say you're a writer, and you know, you you know, you you sell some books, all that kind of stuff. But to go from where they started out to become these just the 
absolutely on top of the world like that. I mean, it's just, and then the, the subsequent, you know, uh, decline that you have to have in that sort of tragic way is just, no, I can't think of any anyone else who's made made journeys like they have. You know, imagine to be Diego Maradona to sort of, you know, to have won the World Cup sort of single-handedly almost like that. Wow. It is so extraordinary. But again, what is so interesting about this for me and and um, not that we want to compare ourselves to them at all, but I will say that curiosity and formal education don't necessarily go together. And um, yeah. it is so interesting to know about Tyson that he left school when he was seven and a half years old and learned so much, knew about the Frankish kings, knew about Clovis, knew about Pepin the Short, got interested in in Machiavelli when we showed him a first edition of Machiavelli here at the library. He said, I think there's an earlier edition, and he was right. You know, all of all of those things that, that make people feel surprised, but in a way, what is surprising is that they're surprised because people are so much more than one thing, which brings us fully back to the notion of classification, is that... Um, these people can't be quite classified and people are people are filled with so many interests and it being the birthday today of of Whitman it's a perfect moment to to end by saying you know I contain multitudes is it Whitman's birthday it is he was born in 1819 on May the 31st how how great to know that it you know it, it I don't know really what what it does to our lives to know it, but I sort of enjoy it. Yeah, me, me too, me too, absolutely, yeah. Um, and as a something that I've started doing, I mean, it's the other way around, that when some artist or musician that I've really, really loved dies, I always put up now in the, in the window some little thing just saying, you know, R.I.P. or whatever. And particularly when Ornette Coleman, uh, uh, when... Um, when Charlie Hayden died. Ooh, I love. Yeah, and we put this nice little banner up in our, this is in the book, but in, in our flat in London, and then turned the speakers outside into the street. So three great, uh, you know, Hayden uh, songs were, were um, shared with a, with, with, um, with a London street that didn't necessarily, you know, want to have this tribute paid, but it, it, it was played. Well, you know, I... I... It, it makes me think of, of, of one of my favorite moments in, in film, um, in, in my years watching movies, which is, uh, and, and given the fact that Jean-Pierre Léo just won this big award in Cannes, in The 400 Blows, you remember uh, the, the, the main character making a little shrine to Balzac um, as he reads him in his 14th year this this way of of um commemorating of of celebrating and and with with um with Whitman I feel that I feel that very very strongly and he he said it better than anybody this notion that we have to be one thing is so so fallacious and um and damaging yes i, I would agree jeff it, it it's really 
a, a, a true delight, a pleasure. I, I feel like we have many things to do together. One of them is to to either just the two of us, uh, but perhaps with other other writers as well, have a a ping pong public match. Certainly have a match in 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 uh, in Calabash in Jamaica for sure, and uh, perhaps have uh, John Berger join me on the phone if he'd like to do that. It would be painless, I hope. And I love talking to you, and um, I'm very, very much looking forward to seeing you, and travel well, and see you soon. Uh, absolutely. See you very soon, Paul. In fact, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Take, take, <laughs> Great. take good care. Okay, bye-bye.